All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Creating Structure podcast. Thank you for listening so far. Got great uh, a great audience out there. And today, it is my pleasure to have Mr. Jeff Haber from W&W Glass. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Good to, good to see and hear you. You as well in our two-dimensional virtual world. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so rare we get to actually interact with uh, people in person these days. So this is, I guess, as close as we get right now. Yeah, it is. In fact, you and I usually see each other at a facade tectonics or a BEC mm -hmm. or something like that for four minutes or three minutes or five oh, minutes. Yes. So it's all good. Well, you will be well known to many of the audience in architectural construction, glazing community, but we have listeners from around the country, around the world, and some who won't know you. So for that, why don't you just reintroduce yourself, where you're from, what's your background, where do you work, where'd you go to school? Great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me today. And yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping that we can uh, see each other in person again at one of these uh, numerous industry events soon. Yeah. So I am one of the owners here, one of the managing partners at W&W Glass. Um, I've worked for the company in various capacities. I was thinking about the other day for about 36 years hmm. and I'm only 52 years old. So I got a really early start. Um I started working for my father and my uncle when I was in high school, um, after school mm -hmm. in the old days, uh, literally when I got my, my learner's permit of driving, uh, test that I could pass, I, uh, I would drive from high school over to the office, which wasn't too far. And I would, my first job was to make copies of blueprints mm. on an old literal, literal blueprint copy machine, making sepias and other other various copies with nasty chemicals that were just uh, I can still smell it. I can still yeah. smell the sepia mylar. The sepia mylar. So, so that was my <laughs> first my first taste of this industry was making copies, sweeping the shop, doing all kinds of you know mundane tasks that a kid wants to do to make gas money, basically. Mm -hmm. um, when I was sixteen years old, so it started that way, and I uh, I worked here you know during during my after school and then over the summers. While I was in high school, I worked, uh, I started to work in the shop and then got to drive trucks. And then when I started going to college or my senior year of high school, I think I was 18 and, uh, I started to work in the field, um, sort of quote unquote, as an apprentice, uh, glazing con glazer. Mm -hmm. So I would go to the job sites. I would drive the truck, deliver stuff to the site. I'd work on site with them for a couple of hours. They'd show me some things, um, try not to lose any, you know, appendages hanging off my body, like fingers <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, drive the truck back to the, to the shop and load it for the next day. And, you know, that was my first year. And then I got to work on real job sites and work on a swing stage and have a harness on and go on the outside of a building and be part of a giant crew setting glass. And wow. that was, that was still when everything was field glazed. And I don't want to I'm not old. It just unitized curtain wall in New York city didn't exist in the 1980s. That's a yeah. great stat. It was, it just, it just wasn't here. Everything was field glazed. So you had companies that did uh, you know, whether it was Wausau or Cornier or what have you that installed the frames and then they would hire us and we would do the glass and we would field glaze all these, all these high rises. And it was great. And I still drive by a lot of them now and show my kids who work for me. I'm like, Hey, I worked on that job. And, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I went to college at University of South Florida. Um, I got a degree in uh, business administration in 1990. And uh, I had a choice, I had a fundamental choice. Do I 
go right into the glass business or do I stay in Florida, play some golf and figure out life as a unemployed person and try to find my own way. And mm-hmm. after about a month when I ran out of money and I didn't know what the <laughs> heck I was doing, I was like, uh, all right, I think I'll come back and I'll try, I'll try my hand at the family firm. So <laughs> Love it. I, I think I was uh, employee number 12 here at W and W. Wow. That's my, great. My older brother, Mike was employee number 11. So, you know, we had a very small office. We occupied, you know, the, a, a small spot in this building in an upstairs corner. And uh, my father, my uncle, Ron and Jerry Haber, they, they shared a, an office together. It was maybe like a, a 15 by 20 room with desks at opposite corners and a small conference room adjacent to it. And then the rest of us were in a big bullpen, a few people in accounting, a few people in estimating, and one fellow who looked over the shop and one or two project managers, and that was it. And, you know, I remember my first year in business, I'm not afraid to say, you know, we did $9 million in sales. This was in the 90s? This was in 1990. 1990. So, wow. So we that is from, quite a trajectory. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was unbelievable. It was right place, right time. And, and, you know, there was a recession in 91. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I remember looking at my brother and I was talking, man, what's going on? This, we're not getting any jobs. How's this going to go? And, you know, you had to mail in your bids or you could fax them in. Fax them. Yeah. Fax them in. And, you know, it was one of those kind of things. But if it was a sealed bid for something in New York City, like a, a hospital or a jail or whatever we were working on, it had to be, you know, in person. So sometimes I would have to hand deliver the bids and we'd call up for the bid results and try to find out if we were the low bidder. I mean, it was it was so archaic compared to now. Oh, yeah. But that's how, you know, so I, I learned at the foot of um, what I called old timers at the time. <laughs> and uh, they taught me a lot. And life was just a little slower in, 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 in the real construction world. You just the time pressure of doing things wasn't it wasn't the instantaneous requirement of an answer that it is today. Now, yeah, that's for sure. And was that place, that physical place, was it in New York City or in a suburb? So we're in a suburb. We're 22 miles from Midtown, Northwest, over the George Washington Bridge, across the Hudson River, just north of New Jersey, but in New York. It's kind of a centrally located place. They used to have a, a, before my time here, um, they had an office in the Bronx, Okay. Um, and, a, and a fab shop and stuff like that. And then they moved up here to Rockland County to get out of New York City. And, you know, they, my father, and my uncle were having myself and my brothers and sisters and stuff and my cousins. They wanted to, you know, find the, the outdoors and some open area. And it's, it's, it's where a bunch of highways come together. So Route 80 comes in from the West. So all your Midwest deliveries, you got I-95 that run North and South. They all kind of come together right like a mile from where we are. Yeah, I know that so was spot. A, so it was a perfect spot for us. Yeah. Um, and, and we've been here ever since, and we bought an office building and we've just, you know, it was 50,000 square feet. And as we've grown, we've just expanded and kicked out tenants and taken over more and more of the, of the building ourselves. Now we've got 60 people here in our office, um, engineers, draftsmen, accounting, project managers, estimators, et cetera. Um, and last year we did over 200 million in revenue. Oh my goodness. What so a fantastic trip. Well, congratulations. In, in 30 years from nine to from 9 million to 200. One of my earlier guests, Ralph Gaddy, uh, that's going to rival him. They, I think when he started his father's organization, he went at his organization. I think he was employee number four. He told me 
Wow. I think they went from 180,000 to a hundred million in 25 years, something like that's, that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Same yeah, thing as father had a plywood top on some file cabinets and yeah, I'm sure Ralph will listen to this. So shout out to Ralph, but that's, I had no idea, Jeff, that it was only, you were number 12 yeah. in 1990. And it's, it's really been a relatively short time to go from 9 million to 200 million. That's very impressive. Yeah. It's uh thank you. It was, um, it was, it was unbelievable. It was a great, you know, a great ride getting here. And, and actually what we've done, because I, I've got some kids who work here. My brother has uh, a son who works here and another son that's coming. And um, who knows what will be with uh, my other brother and my cousin. So we, we actually turned our company into an ESOP uh, okay. at the end of 2019. Okay. So now we're a hundred percent employee owned. And, you know, we really, we didn't want to sell the business. We, we've been approached. We've had discussions like everybody does, private equity, strategic, this, that, whatever. Yeah. Not our thing. We're not finance engineers. We're glass engineers. Well said. And we want to do what we do. And I don't want to work for somebody else. And somebody else probably doesn't want me as their employee. Um, so it, it just made the most sense to, to try to reward the people that have been here. It helped us get to where we are. We have a lot of people who've been here over 20 years. That's impressive. And it's an amazing pool of talent. And we've been, you know, we've been supplementing as people retire and what have you, we've hired some younger people and some, some people with different backgrounds to try to fill in the mix. So we've got a wide range of ages and we've got, you know, some great women who work for us now that, you know, back in the day, that wasn't so easy to find women who Mm -hmm. wanted to be in the construction business. Um, And we we really have a, a really diverse workforce both at, at administrative level and, and in the field. So we, we, we really feel we represent the melting pot that is New York. That's good. Um, in a great way. Yeah, that's so great. It's, uh, it, so, so it's great. So, so yeah, so the business is, is, uh, is solid. And, you know, up until, uh, you know, the beginning of last year, we thought we were just on like an unstoppable train that was just rocking and rolling forward. There you go. Yeah. Unstoppable like train. Else. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that more. I, I do have a quick question on your on your business. Um, I, am I right in guessing that you directly employ Glazer Union Glazers as foremen that are on your staff as well, and that's a key component of the business? So Union Glazers and Union Ironworkers. Okay. Um, we've got uh, we, we're running right now directly about a hundred or so um, directly employed by W&W mm-hmm. and um, on a lot of the uh, unitized curtain wall jobs we have here in New York city. Um, we have a, a, an installation partner okay. that runs another hundred iron workers. Mm. Um, and we hire them as a subcontractor to do uh, work. And we've worked closely with them for a long time, separate company. Um, so uh, under our management control is, you know, 200, 200 people in the field. Okay. And, uh, it's really been a, 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 an unbelievable task to manage that many people and that many jobs and, and do all the other things and still try to be able to, to touch the customer in person, because ultimately this business is about relationships I mean, yes, you, you have to execute, no doubt. Your engineering has to be sound. You have to have high quality, either in-house manufacturing or great partners, but you have to be able to execute. And, and it's all about relationships because if you don't have that relationship, you better be the lowest number out there or you're not getting that job. You know, Jeff, this has been reiterated on 
almost every show in glass and glazing and subcontracting, everybody at some point has said, it's all about relationships in this business. That is so well said. In the end, yeah, we got to be delivering excellence, but you got to have a rock solid relationship. So yeah, thank you and, for that. And, that. and that relationship, it, you know, it's a vertically integrated relationship because it's a relationship with your employees, mm-hmm. for sure with your customers, with the manufacturers and the vendors that you buy product from. Right. So, because if you don't have trucking companies, equipment rental companies, I mean, all facets of the, you know, storage warehouses, people at the port, if you bring in material like we do from overseas, I mean, he would, it's unbelievable how many people have to touch a project to get it to go well. And if you're just another person and you pay your bills whenever you pay your bills and you don't treat people with respect and you don't have a, a good relationship with them, you'll never get the service you need to be able to deliver on what you promised. Mm, well said. Well, you know, this is going to be really good because uh, you work in arguably one of the most challenging urban environments in the country. I mean, working in any inner city environment or major metropolitan area can be challenging inside the beltways or inside the actual urban core. So let's get into some of that. Um, I mean, just the supply chain and logistics you've talked about, the different value propositions. Um, what's some of your biggest challenges? Well, oh, where, do, where do we start? <laughs> um, for, first, I would tell you that we, we consider ourselves like you know Frank Sinatra, because if, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Okay. Speaking of New York City. So you know, the reality is, is that it is, an, it is a very challenging environment to work in, um, which is why when people come from out of town to do work here, um, it's not always successful. I'll just leave it at that. Lots yeah, of companies it. have come and lots of companies have gone. And that's not an ego thing. That's just a reality of the situation. I think for us, um, the, the challenges of working in New York are trying to understand the logistical problems of physically building something complicated on postage size stamp postage stamp size lots with tough access or no access and and everybody just on top of everybody else everybody wanting to get do the same thing at the same time and you know we've learned over the years how to manage these jobs and, and, and you got to have a good plan and so I'm not going to say anything that any of my competition doesn't do in their city um, it's just the intensity and the difficulty here of doing it is a little different Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, if you have a good, when we sell a job or I should, let me go back long before we sell the job and we're estimating a job and we're working out our, our proposal, you know, price is only a part of it. It's the logistic plan. It's the schedule. It's the, how are you going to build it? How do you actually physically execute on this plan? Whether it's, where's your location for cranes? Where's your offloading and unloading location? Where's the hoist relative to the work you're going to do? What size is the hoist? Can it fit the size of the panels that you're trying to do? There's so many different things that go into planning these things. What kind of equipment can you use? Can you get a permit for it? Is there a street closure in in certain areas of the city? A street closure permit that you can't get. Are there moratoriums at certain times of year and certain times of day where you can't do work? Some things you can only do at night. Some things you can only do on weekends. So knowing the local jurisdictions, knowing the rules of how to do what you do, 
and then trying to make sure that you have all the right permits and all the right expediters in place to help you get those permits and having the right pieces of equipment and the right layout area so you're not over a vault, a, a, a hollow in the street for an electric vault or what have you. Um, there's so many different things that go into this. Can you load the floors? Are the columns spaced far enough apart where you can actually lean your material up against the column and not have it be in your way? Are there enough safety tie-off points at any given location? There's just so many things that if you don't have a good plan of how you're going to actually build it, never mind, oh, I think it's going to be 40 bucks a square foot, or it's going to take me, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to set six, six pieces a day. That's nonsense. That's not how you do an estimate. And that's certainly not how you put a program together. You got to go down and you got you and it comes from experience and you need to draw on the experience of your general super, your field foreman, your glazier foreman, your ironworker foreman, and understand how do you unload? How do we how do we pack the crates? What orientation is the glass inside the crate? How do you want it shipped from the factory so that you don't have to double handle it? Those are all logistical things that have to be done because the factory may charge you more money to pack it a certain way, mm -hmm. but you save 10 times that in time and, and man hours in New York if it's done right. So you spend that extra money up front. But if you don't ask them in advance or have that dialogue with them, they don't know. They just give it to you however they want to give it to you. It sounds like you've got to be a master of logistics as an organization. Y you do. And, and even when you have the best plan and you're well laid out, you know, that just gets you to like a level playing field before you actually get there and start doing the work. Um, so it's, it's, there are challenges of working in New York city that are just different, physically different than working anywhere else. We've had the opportunity to do jobs in different. Um, we used to have a uh, Nevada contractor's license and we did some jobs in Las Vegas where mm -hmm. it was wide open. Um, we've done jobs in Texas uh, and, we, and sometimes we partner with somebody down there. So we, we've done jobs in other places. Uh, we do work in Connecticut. We'll do work in Pennsylvania if we have to. Um, so we understand the differences of working in these different areas. And it's just night and day um, in terms of logistics. And, you know, and, and, and the price reflects it because it's not as complicated. It doesn't take as long. You don't need as many standby trades. You don't have the certain union rack schedules and other things that kind of drive some of your logistics and some of your pricing. So it's just different. And what we just tell people is we're happy to do a job if there's a reasonable opportunity for us to bring value to your team. Mm -hmm. And we don't have, and you don't have a W and W in whatever city it is, then sure. We'll come out and we'll see if we can bring some value to you and, and, and try to do that job more often than not. There's a lot of really good glazing contractors all over the country mm -hmm. that have a lot of expertise um, and they're great in their neck of the woods. Yeah. Just like when, just like I recommend they not come to New York and lose a bunch of money just to do a job. What value does W&W have to go into City X, to go into Detroit and decide that they're going to do a job? What, what, do I, what special sauce do I have that they don't have? So it's kind of like you got to understand the market and understand what you're really good at and where you bring value. And I think that's part of the part of the equation because um, there's plenty of jobs in New York that we don't do that. We say, nah, it's not for us. Yeah, boy, I, this is why I love this business so much. It's so challenging and so interesting at the same time. Um, before we move on to your comment about value, because I love your comment about value proposition. Um, I, it just as you're talking, you know, we hear a lot about um, creating process and systemization. Is there any way? 
that a company like yours categorizes all of the things you just said in some systemic manner as some kind of checklist to go into looking at each job's like a point of reference from which to benchmark even outside of the job specifics um yes and no the, informally it definitely exists and the senior estimators and my my brother's cousin and I um possess that knowledge and we kind of because we've done it so many times for so long we all know how to do it um we are in the process of trying to distill some of that information to the next group of people that are the junior level people the people that have you know recently joined our team over the last few years as well as our sons um it is much much more difficult than i ever thought it would be to try oh. to actually create an sop yes. for doing this kind of project this kind I of agree. job it's it's a monumental task um i wish i had a I wish I was more diligent going going along over the last five years of actually writing it down and creating a spreadsheet for it. Um, we do have templates for, for quite a few projects, whether it's unitized curtain walls, storefronts, oversized glass, interior metal and glass, point supported glass walls, cable walls. So we do have templates that we will use so that we don't miss something. We have boxes that have to be checked. Um, and that's been something that we've developed over the years, mostly when you screw up. Mm -hmm. Oh, I forgot that on this one. I better not forget it next time. Yeah. That's the only way to learn, right? You got to make a mistake and then learn from it. Try not to try not to do it again. Boy, I agree that uh, creating SOPs is a, it's worthwhile. And I think it's substantive, but in the end, it does not replace intuition and experience. Nope. You have got to have intuition and experience, which, which, run parallel, by the way, our intuition increases the more experience we have you. So I, I just wanted to ask that question. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, um, it is interesting when you're able to have a break and step back after you secured a job or even after you've lost a job, unfortunately, and go, wow, all right. I, I knew, okay, I was right. That's how that went. I did all the work. I spent two weeks putting it together. I stayed up all night. I worked on the weekends. I came in and I did my labor takeoff and I took off every nut, bolt and screw and washer. And it came in within 3% of where I said it was going to come in when I first started looking at this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that, that either reinforces the fact that you do things one way and you're either right or wrong more often than not. And I don't know if that's a self-fulfilling prophecy or not or that you do have some experience and something to bring to the table and that you do know what you're doing. Wow. Um, I like to think the latter versus the former. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I'll do that as well. I'll unroll a set of drawings here and say in my brain, I'll go like five, four, three, two, one, Mel Robbins, $20,000 of structural engineering. I'll hand <laughs> it off. It'll come back 20,500 up. Got, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. So, um, you know, you're oh, you very, mean, you, you mean you didn't just start this yesterday? <laughs> yeah. 1994, <laughs> I started Wheaton Sprague and I actually started in a curtain wall business in 1984 at PPG's commercial construction group. And then wow. after they closed and I spent a year and a half as a commercial plans examiner at, at a municipality, I joined Gary McKissick at MK Architectural Metal. And I was the staff engineer there for five years from wow. 89 to 94 and uh, Unitize was just getting kind of developed. Yeah, um, you would 
you would chuckle. I'll send you a detail sometime of one of our early unitized concepts at PPG, which was basically a modified stick wall. Right. Um, but you have a very forward facing, uh, you're very visible for W&W. I see you at shows and industry events. Do you have a specific role in sales and business development or does your work encompass everything there? So a little bit of everything, but most my, my emphasis is on um, business development, sales and marketing and estimating for our, I'll call it our, our specialty structures system group. Okay. Um, not for unitized curtain wall, not for generic storefronts, and not for everyday glazing. I, I don't typically get involved very deep on that end of the business. Um, my brothers handle that. And, and I think the fact that we all have these very, these sort of lines drawn about who does what, where keeps us from killing each other. <laughs> and and my, my, my father is very happy that we've, we've been able to, to develop that over the time. Cause I think that was his biggest fear was we were just going to beat the crap out of each other. Like we used to, when we were little. Yeah, that's and good. I, I won't tell you who used to win, but it wasn't me. And there was one of us that used to get all the, all the good licks in. Um, but it, so, yeah, so we have some specific roles uh, in the business. My brother, Mike, um, he's head of, you know, for New York city, he does all of the, the sales on the curtain wall and storefronts and, and, and big project work. My brother, Scott, oversees all of our New York City operations, which really, you know, is, is the, I think, the most difficult pro job of, of the four of us. Um, and my brother, uh, my cousin Howard oversees the operational end for all of the specialty glazing work that I typically sell. So Howard and I typically, I kill it, he skins it, and Mike and Scott follow that role same way. I like it. What does specialty structures entail then in your domain? So, what is that? We, we are the um, North American distributors for the Pilkington planar system for Pilkington's point supported drilled glass product. Um, and we also, over the years, that product has evolved into other kinds of cable walls, tension structures, um, oversized glass installations that don't necessarily involve drilled glass or point supported glass. So we do more than just Pilkington. We do more than just drilled glass. Um, we do bring see we do see great value in their products, but you know it's not for every project. And some architects and developers and designers they like to do something different. And we want to we try to solve that 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 riddle for them with our as we call it our WW Glass Engineering Group. Mm -hmm. um, we don't we don't we're not consultants like you. Um, our our goal is to be a subcontractor and to ultimately you know sell and build these systems. We get asked all the time, oh, you know, could we hire you as a consultant to design a glass wall and then we're going to bid it out to other people? I'm like, no, I don't really want to engineer work for other people to do. Right. I'm ha I'm happy to engineer it and design it, but I want to build it. Right. Um. So that that's the difference between us and other other companies that that do specialty glass engineering. We yeah. want to be contractors. Uh, I am fascinated. I I always have been. I don't know why, but I'm fascinated with this whole thing that you are the North America distributor of Pilkington Planar. To the to the extent that you're at liberty to say so, like how did that develop? Was that like your baby? Did they come to you? Like how, how did that come out of a 12 person, nine million dollar company to what it is now? So I'll I'll give you a great short story. Okay. So in I'd say in the in the mid 1970s. My father and my uncle hooked up with a company called Ellis Pearson that was a distributor for glass, racquetball, and squash courts. Um, how they actually hooked up with those guys, I don't really remember. It was definitely before my time. Um, but 
through the late seventies and early eighties, um, W and W became the largest distributor of glass racquetball and squash courts in the United States. And if you remember going to a health club when you were much younger, every club had a racquetball court. Oh yeah. Some, some clubs still have them. Yep. Racquetball and squash. And that was a, a major thing. So over the span of about 15 years, they, we sold and or furnished and installed or furnished only um, over 8,000 projects of and, and most of those had three, four, five, up to 10 courts at a facility all over that, the country. That's a fun fact to know that. Thank you for that. Okay. Keep going. So, so that that's, and, and those were drilled bolted glass products with tempered glass. Mm-hmm. So the deal was, is that we would bring over the engineering and the hardware from this company in, in, in the UK, Ellis Pearson, and we would have the glass made locally because there was no way we were going to ship glass from Europe to do a rackable court. So Falconer Glass in upstate New York, they were our partner and they were the first people to work with Pilkington, North America, LOF and Chris Barry and those folks to develop heat soaking of tempered glass here in, in the U.S. and be a big proponent of it. Rackable courts were typically three eighths face glass and half inch fins, fully tempered. Mm-hmm. After a route, uh, uh, after a, um, a bout of spontaneous breakage and nickel sulfide inclusions, we became experts in nickel sulfide. And, bet. We, and, and it was unbelievable. And the only other people that were dealing with that was Pilkington in the UK mm-hmm. because they were selling this structural glass product that was heavy tempered glass, half inch thick and three quarter inch thick. Um, and people didn't have the same quality control standards that they have today in terms of the raw ingredients that were going into glass. So nickel sulfide was a real problem. And fast forward, uh, say it was like, uh, I don't know, early 80s, somebody approached, I think it was either my father or my uncle, one of them, and said, hey, we'd like to do one of those glass rackable courts on the outside of an office building. I think it was here in New York, you know, 30 feet high, 40 feet high, whatever it is outside. Can you do it? So my father, yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. We'll figure it out. So we spoke to Falconer and said, you know, listen, we need to do this glass. It's got to be thicker than the rackable courts. You know, can you help us out? And they said, you know, we work with this glass engineer in Toronto. He's brilliant. He's a really Mm -hmm. smart guy. His name is Dale Galbraith. We'll hook you up with him and see if you can figure this out. Okay. So Ronnie and Jerry, they get get a hold of Dale. And um, Dale is a brilliant, mad scientist. That's the way I would describe him. (laughs) He had a curtain wall company. Mm -hmm. I think he went bust twice. Um, the business and building end of it wasn't his thing. Mm-hmm. The design, engineering, and making, That's nobody better. Yeah. This man could literally sit in a meeting and as an architect or an engineer was describing something to him, he could draw it in 3D by hand with a felt tip pen. I love it. Even upside down or inside out. Uh-huh. I mean, it was, ama- it was fantastic to watch. Yeah. So- Dale had this product that he was selling up there in Canada, um, and it was a ground-based glass wall stacked. Pilkington had a similar product, but it was hung, and they used to use, call it the suspended assembly. And back in the day, that was they had the lock on that market, and they worked with all the big architects. Foster's first big job, Grimshaw, all those folks from the U.K., if you look on their website, you will see these jobs from the early 70s that Pilkington did with them. And they're massive jobs, huge glass jobs. Um, so they had a niche, but only with those super high-end architects. 
all of a sudden we figured out, oh, we could do a stacked system. And we, we tested it, we made it, we patented it, and we trademarked it. And it was called Glasswall with one S and one L. And right now, if you pick up the phone and you dial 1-800-GLASSWALL with one S and one L, that is our still, still our phone number. I love it. What so, a great story. So that was, so for years we, we became, so we did that one job and then we did more jobs and we tested these walls and we worked with Falconer. When Falconer went bust, we got involved with Viracon and Viracon was making all of our glass and we made insulated units with holes in it. Nobody over here was doing that. So we were the only, so it was W&W with glass wall and Pilkington planar system. That's it. That's all you had. Shortly after Falconer went bust, Temp Glass got involved. Used to be owned by Indal, I think, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of the guys who shall remain nameless left. We didn't hire them because we were too stupid. And we let <laughs> them go. We were like, ah, we don't think so. And they went, and guess what they did? So Stackwall from, from Temp Glass before Old Castle bought them you know, going back 30 years, 25 years, whatever it was, they basically did a, a, a copy of our system that was enough to be different, that it didn't violate our patents. And now there were three. So now you had Pilkington, W&W, and Temp Glass mm-hmm. competing for all these glass walls. Um, fast forward to 1993, one day I get a thing. I used to, you used to get these things in the mail and you, you can, you can edit this out of the stories growing long. So we used to do these sales and marketing pitches through magazines because there was no internet. So you'd have a bingo card, you'd check off the box, send me more information on your stuff. And we'd we'd mail a catalog and a letter. Thanks for requesting our information. Here it goes. And I was in charge of putting the labels on the envelopes and sending it and keeping track of who we sent it to. And then I would follow up two weeks later with a phone call. Hey, you requested information. What are you working on? Can I help you? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden I'm out. I think I was on vacation or whatever it was. And I go back and I'm going through the list of who requested the stuff. And I see somebody sent a catalog to Pilkington, North America in Toronto, Canada. And I freaked out. I'm like, why would you send our competitors, our catalog? What's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Literally the next day, Pilkington, North America called the office and said, we'd like to have a meeting. Can we come down and see you? Okay. So that was to my father, my uncle, they told me, and I was like, Oh man, what do they want to buy this, buy us I'm out of a job. I just started, you know, I was all dejected about it. They come down to see us and they said, you know what, folks, we would like to do what we do best, which is make product. We're not good at the business end of it. We're not good at the sales end of it. So we're going to close up our sales office in Canada. And we would like to engage with you guys to do all the sales and marketing for our products and give you exclusive rights to all of North America if you stop selling your own system. Wow. What a value proposition. So we said, hmm, give us, give us a second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, 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 we, so we negotiated a contract with them. And in December of 1993, we signed the first of a series of five-year contracts so, you know, 28 years later, here we are still doing this. Um, and, and they, they were absolutely the market leader, the, the greatest technology, um, had a huge hat, then have a huge technology center in the UK and, and basically like our own little private test lab. So we would build mock-ups, we would build walls, we'd build giant pieces of glass. We would apply wind load to them. We'd try new fittings. We did all this stuff in our own factory, right off the assembly line, right next to where the float glass got made. 
So all within a town of St. Helens, you have raw flow glass, a coating facility, the architectural fabrication facility, and a test and a testing facility or the R&D. Boy, how ideal is that? It was great. And we dominated for years and years and years. And I think people, I think as what happens with people, you get too big, you get a little complacent, you can't be all things to all people everywhere at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you get a little bit of a vacuum and other people start to come in and things get a little easier for the other Europeans to come in and start doing things. And other companies start saying, well, if they could do it, I could do it. And knockoffs start to come up. And sure enough, now there's a bunch of people who do these kinds of systems. So we have been forced to reinvent ourselves. Mm -hmm to keep up with competition and to stay ahead of the curve and to try to still bring value to the architect developer and owner and contractor of why should they hire us? And that's been the journey with Pilkington all these years. Yeah. And, it, and it's led us, and there've been plenty of jobs that we've done without Pilkington. Cause if they our, our deal is always, if they can't physically make the product themselves, we're free to go do whatever we want. I see. So they have, you know, listen, they have a factory, they have size limitations, they have product limitations. There's certain things they can and can't do. And, and we've done some, some really remarkable jobs. I mean, we've literally, we just finished, I don't know, a 50,000 square foot job with them, 100, 125 foot tall, gigantic glass walls for the Jacob Javits Convention Center. Yeah. You look at it on LinkedIn, you can see it all over the place. TVS Architects, Lendlease Turner Joint Venture. So Pilkington is still relevant. We mm-hmm. still do a huge amount of work with them. Yeah. But we also do lots of other cool jobs with other people. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, so we're happy to be able to engineer our way around a problem and give that client what they want. So that that's really how we got into the specialty glazing world. And because I traveled all over the country and dealt with customers in, in all the far flung states, um, I developed a reputation to, to be able to come in there and speak honestly, tell them what we could do, tell them what we couldn't do if we couldn't do it. And that kind of gave us relationships with all these different glazing contractors. And it gave us a unique perspective because we were the only people selling an engineered system. And it's always engineered. We don't just sell product Mm -hmm. or parts because we build it ourselves. So we bring a knowledge base that other salespeople who just make product couldn't possibly do. Yeah. They don't have that that base. They don't have that experience. Right. So my best customer is a glazier that's willing to listen and we helped them do their labor estimate. We put one of our own guys on site. We helped show them how to build these things. We're not afraid to, it's no secret, you know? We just want it done. We want them to make money. We want them to do a great job, do it safely, do it quickly, have a satisfied architect and developer so we all get called for the next job. It's a, it's a fascinating, I mean, the whole thing is fascinating, uh, not just the story, but just that comment where, in a different environment, that other glazing subcontractor could be your competitor, but because you're staying in your lane in a specific market, Correct. in specific uh, channels of distribution, now you're an ally, you're a partner, and it gives you both unique perspectives to learn from each other. That's a very contemporary version of our current economy as well, where you, your competitor could be your ally in some cases. That's true. And you know, we try to We've, we've made our mistakes like, every, like everyone has. So if we're looking at some of these jobs and we're talking to one of our glazing contractor potential customers, we will tell them straight out, Here, here's, what we, here's the problem we see with this. Here's why we wouldn't do what you're contemplating doing. Here's a solution, an alternative. Now you make your best decision and it's up to you. Yeah. Um, and that's all you can do. And, and we've got longstanding relationships. Listen, we're not perfect. 
we don't do everything right all the time. You know, we just don't, we do our best, but it, you know, we stand behind our work and we stand behind our engineering and our, and our, and our, our promises. And if we screw up or if our factory <laughs> screws up or whatever, we make it right. Yeah. That's all. That's all you can do that. I always say, do. I've always said the measure of a great company isn't if they screw up or not, because everybody's going to screw up. It's, it's being willing to fix it and not complain. Uh, right. Just do what you got to do. Um, I, that is one of the best stories I've heard on the podcast, starting with the surprise that, oh, squash and racquetball courts, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure that was part of the strategic marketing plan. <laughs> I love it. Um, one and, of the best parts about that, I will yeah. just digress for one second. <clears throat> Those squash and racquetball courts had, they were part of URSA, which was the, I think the international something squash and racket association or something like that. They had a trade show every year in mm-hmm. Chicago, every November, first week of November, you go to Chicago, Chicago Hilton and towers, gigantic ballroom at the bottom of this hotel. And it was all of any, any product that was sold in a health club, weights, treadmills, bikes, racquetball courts, uh, towel heating bars, you know, anything you can think of. And they would have workout sessions mm-hmm. in the morning. That's great. And it was fantastic. It was a great opportunity to get out there, see all these different products, meet some really interesting people um, that you would never see in your regular everyday life. I'll bet. And, the, and those trade shows, they, it was just so much fun to go to. You, you do, you do your work, you'd see your customer, you build those little mini racquetball court and set up a whole, you know, display. You'd go to the workouts, you talk to people, you come back with all this swag, you know, stuff, yeah. towels and, and, weights and gym bags and stuff. It was just, it was a lot of fun. We, we, had, it, we had a great, it was a great, we used to fight over who would go to those shows. That's, that's great. Um, let, let's, uh, let's segue for a minute. You know, I, I always tell people, you and I had a little brief conversation as I do with all my guests in advance. And I said, you know, tell me some of your hot points, some of your passion points, some of, some of the things that are really like top of mind. And you talked about value propositions, the role of the glazing contractor. It, you want to talk about that? Sure. You know, it, and I was, I was just having this conversation with somebody else over the last two business days as a, there's a project that we're trying to secure somewhere. And, you know, you've got, an, you've got a design team and you've got a contractor and you've got a procurement officer and you've got all these different stakeholders in the process that are trying to figure out how to get you to a price that they want to spend and get you to agree to a schedule that they want you to meet. Mm-hmm. And those two don't always work together, right? So you have to try to figure out, you can't, obviously the one word you can never say is no. So you need to figure out a way to bring value to the team. And what I find amazing is, and it doesn't matter where you are, I don't care if you're in New York or California or Texas, it's the same issue, you know, and, and it's not every job, but there's quite a few projects out there where you've got, you know, that those stakeholders and the glazing contractor is never considered like of a, as a valued member of the team, right? It's always, Oh, you're a specialty contractor. You're a subcontractor. You're just looking to make as much money as you can. You want to substitute your, my product. You want to change my design. You want to, you know, bait and switch me and then change order me to death. You don't want to meet my schedule. You're going to be evasive. Pick a, all those different things happens all the time. And I'm like, wow, you guys are jaded. Like, you know, I guess, I guess I've done a terrible job in presenting who we are and what we do. Cause that's none of that. We, we try to bring that. If you bring me into your inner circle, 
I promise to bring you value, to help you save you from yourself. Because while you may be an expert in designing a building and building the overall project, et cetera, you're obviously not an expert in the glazing skin or you wouldn't be talking to me or, and you wouldn't have a problem on your hands. So we try to say, let us be part of the solution. Let us bring, tell you, we can lay out options for you. We can show you alternatives. We can tell you the pluses and minuses here with the consequences of product selection or lack of product selection. The, the need for mock-ups or not need for mock-ups and testing and what that means to the schedule and how, how you need to pre-plan for your structural slab or for the steel conditions or live load deflections if you're trying to use an exotic system that has a, a large span glass. All of those things, we do that every day. And it's amazing to me how difficult it is to get heard with that message by those stakeholders. So we like to think that we bring value to the table. I'm sure that we do, because when we finally get that opportunity to lay it all out for them, all of a sudden, now we're part of the team. You always have to get past the price hurdle and all that kind of stuff, but that's like, that's part of the game. But once you do that and you're able to be a quote unquote, I call it on the other side of the table and be working with the team instead of being grilled by the team, Mm -hmm. um, it's a totally different way of doing business. And the, things just move so much more smoothly. And our experience has been that where we've been able to get involved with the project early and become part of that team. And sometimes we do it for nothing, you know, going in, in the hopes of getting a job. It's an investment that we make. That's fine. Up to a point, you know, within, within the limits. Um, but when, when we're able, when the glazing kind, it's not just me, it's a lot of glazing contractors that I talk to because sometimes I become part of their design build team. If you can get in there and explain to them how you bring value, whether it's supply chain management, product selection, logistics, logistics on the installation, structural coordination, waterproofing, et cetera, you become a resource to them. And then they'll remember you and they call you on the next job. Hey, remember that job we did? I got another project, blah, blah, blah. But it's amazing how adversarial the process is right now because people don't appreciate the fact that, th- that most of the decent glazing contractors in this country they, they know what they're doing or we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. So, wow, what a great topic um, and statement. So this, so there's this image in the stakeholders. You're saying that this barrier that you have to overcome where they're, they're looking at you like any other preconceived notion of what a subcontractor or a specialty contractor is. It, is that coming? Hmm. I don't want to step on too many toes here. Like, does that come from the contractor, the architect, the owner, all of them to some degree? Like, where do you find the most resistance? Oh, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's a combination of the, the owner or the owner's rep. If there's an owner's rep or a pro, a, pro, a program manager okay, um, and the general contractor or construction manager, you know, they've got, they've got a, a certain arrangement that they've already made and a schedule and a this and a that. And, you know, without, I don't want to paint everybody with a broad brush because sure. it happens at all the way down the value sure. chain at any one of those stakeholders. Um, but it's amazing to me how, how fulfilling it is when you break through that barrier and you actually become a valued part of the team and the value yeah. proposition changes. And it just kind of, it just makes for a much smoother process and a better project. I mean, there's plenty of customers, um, customers, plenty of glazing contractors around this country that are proud to say they don't do it that way. They're bruisers and they just, 
they're aggressive and they go in and it's pricing and it's substitutions and it's change orders and it's, you know, finding errors in the specs and exploiting them. And that's how they get the job. And they promise them one product. And the minute they change something, the schedule's out the window and that's how they get the job. That's to me, that's a terrible way to make a living. Mm-hmm. That That's, you know, you're not really helping yourself because when it gets tough and when, when the economy sours and things get tough, you need your friends. You need mm-hmm. those relationships. Yeah. Um, you don't want to be known as the change order guy or as the, the bait and switch guy or gal. Yeah. It's just not how we do it. It's very interesting. Your value proposition aligns very similarly to the value proposition. Tim Finley talked about TFIN building solutions last podcast. He, he said that he, he thought one of his hot points was that there's a tremendous amount of value in the manufacturers that he represents um, built into the cost of sale that people don't take advantage of internal engineering, manufacturing capabilities, value adds. And you're speaking to the same thing. And it also speaks to that relationship component you talked about at the start, that it, it really is all about relationships. It sounds like to me, like you're aligning with people in a relationship manner to try to see what is their value proposition and how can I best respect the architecture and, and come to some price and schedule that aligns as closely as possible. Is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. I think you hit it spot on. And I will also tell you, we, we love Tim. He is our architectural rep in the Minneapolis market. Oh, great. Uh, I think we got with him 2018-ish, 18, 19. So for the last few years, unfortunately, you know, the, the market had a crazy, you know, situation going on over the pandemic and everything starting last year. But Tim is, uh, is a valued member of our architectural rep network. So we try to align ourselves with folks like him who are knowledgeable and bring value to the customers that they call on. That is really good to know. Yeah. yeah, he's a value partner as well. He he really knows the the industry. Absolutely. Um, that's good. I did not know that. He just celebrated his two year anniversary on the last show two weeks ago. He's he's been at yeah, it. So it was two thousand right. So yeah, we got together in the I would say the winter of two thousand nineteen. Yeah, that's great. I I said to him, I'm sure your business plan included figure out how to manage through a pandemic, just starting a business. He's like, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Oof. So it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. We'll get to that. Uh, what's your observation on the industry right now on the state of the market on building? Um, y- so I, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I think it's all, it's a, part of it is also geographical mm-hmm. um, depending on where you are. And, but I think in general, and I've talked to a lot of customers in a lot of different cities and towns across the U S over the last six months, for sure. Um, I think it is going to get ugly, uglier than it's been. I think it'll get worse before it gets better for the specialty subcontractor. Um, but I'm hoping that with all of the money that the government plans on pumping into this system, whether you agree with it or not, think it's a good idea or don't, think that we're leveraging our kids' futures or not, that money's coming and it's going to hit a lot of cities and towns and municipalities. And there's going to be lots of big work, whether it's train stations or big infrastructure projects or airports or what have you, that are going to create opportunities for people. It's just going to take time to get there. I think that the the folks, you know, and we're one of them who do a lot of work with private developers. I think that those, they're going to struggle a little bit. I think, you know, we always try, we, and I'll give myself as, as, a, as an example, because we are, you know, one of the bigger glazing contractors, we always try to manage our mix of work, never have too much of any one thing. We learned that in 2008, the hard way, 
don't have too many condos. Don't only have jails and hospitals and universities. Try to have a good mix. So whether it's infrastructures related stuff for airports and transit facilities, some commercial buildings, some renovation and reskin work, which is there's always going to be a market for that. Um, institutional type work, as well as some private work. So you try to manage your mix that you never too overexposed to any one sector of ownership um, and also manage your vendors well so that you're not overexposed or over-reliant on any one vendor that if they have a big problem, you have a big problem. Mm -hmm. um, so those are things that I think that companies that manage those two things well, they'll, they're going to navigate this a lot easier than those that don't. Okay. And so your worst before better comment is to the, to the pipeline of opportunities. There's not as there's not going to be as abundant of a supply of opportunities from a building product point of view. As I think were. in the, I think in the short term, that is correct. Um, what we're seeing is that um, we, we, like a lot of other people, we have rebid some of the same jobs four or five times. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they're just hoping for a better price. They're thinking people are getting desperate. Sometimes they've changed the program. Sometimes they've changed the skin. Sometimes they've eliminated certain elements of it. Now the retail component is gone and they're making it into some other, you know, component down at the ground floor or what have you. Um, it, there, there's been a lot of, a lot of redesign and rebidding, a lot of projects that are on hold, a lot of projects that are just, yeah. they're going to do the design assist part and stop at the end of design and not release product for manufacture. Yeah. Some jobs are going to say, okay, we're going to go to, we'll, we'll manufacture the material. So we lock in our cost, but we're going to store it for a year or two. We're not going to build it until we have a tenant. Mm -hmm. We're not going to rip off that skin and start that renovation process until we're committed that we're going to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, but it also depends on where you are. You know, if you're in a city like Austin, Texas, which is rocking and rolling right now, they, yeah. there's a labor shortage there right? because there's so much work to be done. Yeah. Same thing in Miami, Florida. Um, so th there are pockets of, of activity in certain places where people have moved away from, you know, the New York's and San Francisco's and Chicago's, and they've gone to Dallas and Austin and Miami and, you know, excuse me, Orlando and other places, whether it's climate, whether it's politics, whether it's taxes, there's a wide range of reasons people leave where they are hiding from the pandemic, escaping the city. Yeah. Um, you know. So the, the work, the work will follow those people. Yeah. And, you know, the question is, are people going to come back? I'm hopeful that they will. I'm, I think they will, you know, it just may take a while. New York city is, is really, really, really dependent on tourism. You know, we need people to come in and go to hotels and restaurants and Broadway shows and fill Times square mm -hmm. that right now that's not happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you need people to come and fill these, these giant mega office buildings. They're 15% occupancy right now. But I know that, you know, progress is definitely being made with the vaccines and, 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 and things of that nature, where I think you'll hit a point of critical mass where, you know, once the vaccine is readily available to anyone who wants it in the next mm -hmm. month or two, yeah. then it'll be a month or two from then till most of those people have their immunity. Yeah. So I, I am cautiously optimistic that come the fall, you will see the city start to fill up again. And then that will lead to more opportunities. But, you know, if, there's, if you're, a gap. If, if there's a gap. If you're there's a glazing a contractor, from the time an owner tells an architect to get started, it's 18 months before you get your contract and another 18 months till you build it. That's right. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of time in between where you got to figure out how to maintain your, your efficiency 
maintain your, your staff as best you can to ride out the storm because you want to be ready when the opportunity comes back. Yeah. Have you had any discussions uh, or been a part of any discussions in your in your bidding opportunities, in, in new opportunities with an owner at the table or an owner's rep um, to get an idea of any trends related to COVID and office space or yes. are they all okay? Absolutely. Um, we have a couple of projects now where they've made significant changes to the entrances on, on, a, on a large commercial, a couple of large commercial projects where they've gone to automatic revolving doors touch-free activation for certain automatic swing doors. Um, I call them, uh, for some of the semi-automatic products, it's more like a less touch or touch less often. Um, I don't know how much of that is psychological for tenants coming back to their building versus how much that is really going to stop people from touching things. How many times have you opened a door in the last year where you've put your hand inside your sleeve or used your coat? Many times, many times, or use your elbow on a wall paddle to yep. open an automatic door. Yep. I, so there, there are ways to deal with these things, but a lot of businesses, a lot of owners, they feel they need, they have made the investment um, to try to make the entrances more friendly to people to not have to put their hand on the handle. So that's been a big, that, that's a big change because it's not just the door, it's the control system for it, it's bollards, it's the wiring, it's electrical, it's coordination with all these other things with MEP that's happening around it. So, so yeah, we, we've seen some clients do that. Um, I know that there's some of these antiviral glass products out there, antimicrobial glass products that people are trying to, to push. Um, we've, been, we've been asked about some of them. We haven't really delved that deep into it yet. Um, but it's something that we're, we're anxious to do. I think the other thing from the, from the pandemic that, we, that we've seen from, from clients, from owners that are pushing us, um, they are upgrading their spaces, upgrading some of their offerings, um, whether it's electrochromic glass, more energy efficient products, um, an opportunity to reglaze or, or repurpose certain spaces de-densify certain areas, which creates a whole different level of interior partitions and new new entrance doors that separate areas and things like that. So there's been a, a wide variety of, uh, of things that have changed. I think, you know, once, and I, I, again, I'll speak for the New York City model, once things calm down a bit, I think you're going to see a lot of hospital construction. Mm. Um, I think a lot of hospitals have taken a beating over the last year because they've been inundated with people. Um, that they were never meant to house that many of them. Um, I think they need to create more. I think you, you, we were already being notified that they're going to be expanding certain hospitals into certain underserved communities. Um, and this, this horrible situation early on in the pandemic in New York that really affected um, at, a, at a disproportionate rate, you know, minority communities, they're now going to make a big effort building schools, building community centers, building hospitals, building transit um, uh, you know, stations in those neighborhoods. Those are going to lead to opportunities for everybody. So it's a shift. It's more of a shift mm -hmm. in time, time to get through this paradigm shift as to where the buildings are built, the types of buildings, the changes to the buildings, et cetera. Right. And I just think that, yes, to answer, yes, that's what that is, but it's going to take time to do. Absolutely. So in, in that intervening window, six, 12, 18 months, 
you got to get smart. You got to hunker down. Still, you got to hunker down. You got to be more efficient. You got to be more mindful of, you know, cash is king. You need to kind of manage your business and as well as you can so that you can ride out these situations and be strong and still be able to be that resource so that when the call comes or when you're finally able to go back into someone's office and say, hi, what are you working on today? Can I help you with something yeah. that you that you have the resources to be able to do it the way that they expect you to? Yeah, that's, that's a significant uh, goal. Absolutely. As we're approaching the end of the time, I, I loved your comment about mindset. You were talked about how it's time for a recalibration. You know, you're still a relatively young guy. I'm 60, you're 52, but you've been at it for 36 years and uh, you still got a lot of energy. But um, talk about that view of old school versus new school, open-mindedness, et cetera. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's been fascinating to me over the last year um, to realize that, you know, I am kind of getting older. I never considered I'm not old. I know I'm not old. I don't feel old, but I'm getting older. And, you know, as, as people who've been doing this for 20, 25, 30 years, you realize that now you're, you're, you're going to become the elder statement statesman of your industry or of your company. Mm -hmm. And people are going to look to you. And there's lots of people that are entering the workforce that are in their twenties and you look like their father or older, God, <laughs> God forbid. And, you know, they do things that you had no idea that they can do. The, the advent of social media and technology um, and how it's used and the work at home and how do you can do all these different things that you could never do before. And, you know, the, 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 the example of a, you know, a person gets a new iPhone and they open it up and they have no idea how to, how to do anything with it. Right. Sometimes that's how you feel with all the technology that's out there. So building technology, um, it, it all the different software that are available, 3D modeling and BIM modeling and things that were, you know, they were in place over the last five, 10 years, but they, they've gotten to be much more robust. I find and people are using them more and more because you have to figure out how to collaborate online um, where you, where before you would sit in a room and you might, you know, look at a computer screen together or sketch something, God forbid, on a piece of paper. Um, you know, now you have to, you have a digital tool that's available to you. And, you know, and I think that the other things that have, that have changed over the last year or two that have been implemented, it's changes in building codes and energy codes mm -hmm. and bird safe requirements on certain buildings and certain Boy, cities. Bird safe has been a big conversation. Yeah. And, and I think those types of things, if you're not like up to speed on emergent technology, you're going to get left behind. And, and it requires an investment of time, of money of effort, of personnel to manage all of this. Because the idea that you could just exclude BIM requirements from your contract, those days are over. Yeah, those are over. You can't waive them anymore. You can't waive them anymore. So can't waive thermal. Unless yeah. Unless <laughs> so unless you're going to you know, hire a third party every time to do all of this for you. And, and for, certain, for certain projects, there's nothing wrong with that. But you need to have, be able to do some of that in-house. You need to be able to, and you need to be able to understand the technology so that when you're having a discussion with someone and they're asking you questions about it, that you can speak intelligently to it. Because if you want to continue to bring value to the team, you got to keep up with technology. And I think that, you know, the generational shift that's out there, I see it with my own kids who work here. And, you know, they're just like born with a computer in their hands, you know, they're yeah. technologically savvy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, there, there's good and bad that comes with all this technology and, and 
you know, all that kind of stuff and social media. And I, I try to stay on the professional platforms. You know, I try to just deal with, uh, you know, LinkedIn for the most part. And, you know, we have a, we have an Instagram page for WW. We have Facebook, all that kind of stuff. LinkedIn is our primary communicator with that. And I don't play around with Facebook on my own um, uh, uh, Instagram. Yeah. Cause I want to see pictures of my dog that my daughter posts and stuff yeah. like that. But, you know, but the, the use of technology and the, the generational shift that's out there, and, and you'll see it when you, when you're talking to architects, younger architects, younger construction managers, um, people who are now assuming leadership roles at, at, at developers offices, they're all younger than us. Mm-hmm. And they know a lot and they have a lot of resources at their fingertips and they expect you to be able to, to be able to have command of those, of that technology and to understand, save them from themselves, make sure you're in compliant with the building code or any other changes that are coming down the pike, you know, in, in whatever market you're dealing in. So I, I think that, you know, if you're not, if you're not willing to embrace it, technology, you're going to get run over by it and then run out. Totally I just, true. I just think that's how it is. Do you, uh, last question on this topic, it, do you think there is an appeal to the 25 and 30 year olds to our industry? It, does it just take a certain type of person who likes that excitement? Does it take a certain type of mentor like you or me to just show the passion? Do you think there's an appeal outside of everybody wanting to go into IT services? Wow. That's, 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 that's great. That's deep. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sure hope there is an appeal. I, I do believe that there is, um, I think there's always, listen, you hate to categorize people, but you know, certain, some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by the task that they'll be doing. Some people are motivated by serving others and, and being community focused. Mm-hmm. So people have different motivations for doing what they do and choosing well the careers they choose. Yeah. Um, I think people that, that are interested in building things or that like science and technology and engineering, um, They'll do well in our industry. So, and, and there's people who are just, you know, they're, they're gifted sales type people. They're outgoing. They communicate. They connect with people. Mm-hmm. They could sell whatever. They could sell medical equipment. They could sell you encyclopedias or they can, you know, all of a sudden start selling facades if they're trained properly. Sure. So I think there's a wide range of people out there. I think that companies like ours and, and all the other people listening to this, I think we all need to do a better job of explain of reaching these young people and explaining what it is that we actually do. Go to job fairs, go to colleges and universities, maybe have a summer intern program for people who don't go to college or university, pull some people out of a local high school and, you know, they can come and even if you do a thing with high school seniors and you bring them into your facility for two half days, here's the computer stations, here's the technology, here's the engineering department, or if you're lucky enough to have a manufacturing facility, this is how we make whatever. Yeah. I, I've taken groups of kids from this uh, charitable organization that I'm on the board of into the city from the, from the engineering class, the engineering club, I should say. And I've brought, you know, groups of a dozen students onto job sites, give them hard hats and sit and goggles and vests, make a deal with the contractor. Hey, I'm going to bring them in. This is what I'm going to show them, keep it safe and show them how do you build a building? How do you do the cool things that we do? Obviously, we want to show them the curtain wall and the glass and the entrances and stuff, but they're more interested in steel superstructures and giant cranes and things like that. Yeah. And if you have the opportunity to make a connection with a young person like that, you can really spark an interest in them that will, could make a seismic shift in how they think about what their future is going to be. 
I agree with that 100%. It's such a tangible, physical field. And as we've said to before, if, if you're like me, you know, hey, kids, I did that. You know, <laughs> what's more cool than the defining architectural component of the building? Uh, you know, yeah, Dad, we know you told us that before. Like, oh, yeah. okay, but yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, wow. One more, one more question before we close. We're, we're at the end of our time. Um, and earlier I asked you, you know, what do you do for fun? You said, like, I do this. This is my, this is what I do. And it, it is true. We're always, you know, there's, we're texting, we're emailing, we're checking social media, we're connecting with customers. But do you have any interests that, that like, I got to get on the bike every week or I play racquetball or I take a hike in the woods, anything that you like to do on the side? So I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I've, I've committed to learn how to play golf this year. Okay. Um, I used to play when I was in college, not well, but well enough. And then I just got too busy. And who, who has four or five hours when you have four kids to go play golf on the weekends? Yeah, right. No one, if you want to keep your wife. So I kind of gave that up for a while. So I'd like to try to get back and, and do that. Um, and I go down to the beach, you know, on the weekends and, you know, I just got a little, a little boat. So I'm hoping to get into that a little bit, just try to change up my, uh, my lifestyle a little bit. I think um, this pandemic has been um, an, an eye opener in that I used to spend a lot of time traveling on the road. Mm -hmm. So when the weekend would come around, I really didn't want to do anything. It's just exhausted. Just, yeah. Yeah. I just need a break. And now I've been, I mean, I've been in the office for the most part this whole time, but you know, not going anywhere. There's a lot of projects at home that I'd like to try to tackle. Um, so I'll be busy doing some of that. Um, but I also find that, you know, now that my kids are older, I need to find more things to do because I used to run around to, you know, high school basketball games for, you know, weekend, 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 every, every day is another basketball game. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to find some time for myself to figure out what am I going to do when I'm not working? Yeah. Um, it's a challenge though. I got to be honest with you. It is a challenge. No, uh, I'll bet it is key question. Are you going to take golf lessons? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I because it part of the reason that I, I sometimes hate to play golf is when you're just not good at something. It's like, it why sucks. do you want to do it? Yeah. It's like beating my head against the wall. So other than having a, a couple of beers and maybe smoking a cigar, it loses its allure after, you know, after three hours. Yeah. I, I started on the same path a couple of years ago. And then um, last year I focused on different things with a community garden and getting into some other stuff in the pandemic. I didn't golf. But the best thing my wife did was for my birthday, she goes, here's a gift certificate to the local public club. I bought you four lessons. If you want more, you can, you can buy those. It, it didn't take much. It did not That's take great. much to just say, swing the driver this way, swing the iron this way, put this way. Um, little goes a long way. So, yeah. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, and you know, it, it's, it, and I've been doing the customer golf thing for a long time around the U S and you know, I, the customers love it because they're definitely going to win. There's no issue there, <laughs> um, but it's mostly the bonding and have a good time. But so I'm, I'm looking forward to winter being over and getting outside and, yeah. you know, definitely getting some skills. So maybe, maybe the next time I see you, we'll be able to swing the sticks a little bit. That'd be good. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are at the end of another hour and 10 minutes. Um, and I could have gone on longer, but we don't want to kill anybody out there, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> I think it would be really 
uh, maybe a year from now, or at some point we can circle back. I know that there would be a very broad appeal to many business owners and entrepreneurs on how in the world do you keep a second generation going on to third generation family business together. That's a fascinating topic in and of itself, but um, you're a busy guy. I sincerely deeply appreciate the time you've given me and given us. I think it'll be a big benefit to the community. Anything to say before we sign off? I, I think you hit it right on the head. I, I you know, the community at large, um, we hope that this is, you know, informative and we've shed a little bit of light on what we do. And uh, you're doing a great thing with these podcasts. I've listened to a lot of them and uh, some great insights, definitely learned some things I didn't know. And, and, and the, the idea to actually learn a little bit more about some of the people in our industry is great. So keep up the good work and thanks for the opportunity today. It's great. Well, it's all about having great guests. You're welcome. And uh, so he is Jeff Haber. With W&W Glass, I'm John Wheaton of Wheaton Sprague on the Creating Structure podcast. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next time. Have a great day.